0: Esther chapter 2 we're going to read from verse 19 and then we'll continue on until the end of chapter 3. So Esther chapter 2 verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the Book of the Annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, Elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the poor, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman, to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interests to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put ten thousand talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who would carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then, on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province, and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself, and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children. On a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality, so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. This is not a problem you can turn a blind eye to. This is not a problem you can solve with small concessions. You cannot fight a disease without killing the carrier. This contamination will not subside. This poisoning of the nation will not end until the carrier himself has been banished from our midst. If I am ever in power, the destruction of the Jews will be my first and most important job. As soon as I have power, I shall have gallows after gallows erected. Then the Jews will be hanged one after another, and they will stay hanging until they stink. As soon as they are untied then the next group will follow and that will continue until the last Jew in Munich is exterminated. Exactly the same procedure will be followed in other cities until Germany is cleansed of the last Jew. I don't think I even have to tell you whose words those are. The most notoriously evil human being who has ever lived. And yet tonight we are meeting a man who could rival even Adolf Hitler for sheer all-consuming hatred. Tonight we have got a reminder, as if we needed one, that the Book of Esther is not a Disney story. This is a story of horrifying helplessness and agonising abuse. We saw last time round in chapter 2, Esther has been kidnapped. She is effectively being used as a piece of meat. And just whenever you think things can't get any darker and any more sinister, in chapter 3 we meet Haman. He's a Hitler figure. And I don't say that lightly. Because here, two and a half thousand years before the Holocaust, we have Haman making very similar plans. As we see Haman at work in this chapter, we are going to be staring evil in the face. And yet, as we do that, we're going to see we have got a God who triumphs in the face of evil. Let's rejoin the story. Just like the last time round, I don't don't have headings tonight. We're just going to work our way through the story and we're going to see the lessons that God teaches us. First of all, notice verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. Just when you think things can't get any more sorted in the Persian Empire, there is a vacancy in the royal court. There is an opportunity for someone to effectively become the prime minister of the empire. It's an opportunity for someone to come along to wield incredible influence and to use that influence in order to change people's lives for the better. Now just think of how much good somebody could do if they had the king's undivided attention. Just think of the great qualities that you might look for in the king's chief of staff. Yet who gets the job? Haman. A megalomaniac. An egomaniac. And in fairness, just a plain old maniac. All he cares about is number one. As long as Haman gets what Haman wants, he doesn't care who gets hurt along the way. And now, this absolute fiend is the king's right hand man. It's not fair, is it? Why does God allow someone like this to rise to the top? It's a disaster. And things are going to get very bad very quickly. Verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. I'm not sure this is going to end well. Verse 3. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai. Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated. For he had told them that he was a Jew. What's Haman going to do? Is he going to rise above it? Is he going to decide that he has a kingdom to run and so he has bigger fish to fry? And so he'll let it go? Of course not. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel or pay him honour, he was enraged. You can be confident. Mordecai, at some point, is going to end up being impaled on a massive spike. He's doomed. He's done for. Except, as if to demonstrate just how much of a maniac this man is, Haman decides to go even further. He has something absolutely catastrophic planned. And we see that in verse 6. Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman wants to kill Mordecai. He wants to kill Mordecai's parents. He wants to kill his brothers, his sisters, his cousins, his friends, and his friends' friends. Haman wants the same thing that Hitler wanted. One gallows after another, from Egypt to Ethiopia, all the way across the Persian Empire. And just like Adolf Hitler, Haman is going to use his lies in order to get exactly what he wants. And so in verse 8, Haman goes to Xerxes, he gets up close to the king's ear, and he fills it with poison. He says, King, there are people in your kingdom, they don't obey your laws, You cannot trust them and they are going to cause you problems. Almost Hitler-esque isn't it? They're poisoning the nation. And then having started with lies, Haman moves on to bribery and he says I will give you 10,000 talents of silver and that's an enormous amount if you just do what needs to be done. And again you can almost imagine Hitler This isn't a problem you can turn a blind eye to. This isn't a problem you can solve with small concessions. What do we need? We need a final solution. And then Haman sits back. What's the king going to say? We already know that Xerxes is a cruel man, But is he really going to be as cruel as this? So Haman waits. Xerxes leans forward. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman. And do with the people as you please. Can't get worse than this, can it? The entire Jewish race is in Haman's hands. And he doesn't waste any time. He gets to work. He issues orders. And he makes sure that the orders are crystal clear. Verse 13. Destroy, kill and annihilate all Jews young and old, women and little children. This decree of extermination goes to every single corner of the empire. It is written in every language. It goes to every province so that everybody is going to get the message. The streets of Jerusalem are to run red with blood. Families from Ethiopia to India Are to be massacred. No exceptions. We can't even imagine the weeping and the wailing that there must have been in every single Jewish home. Because there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. Can you imagine it? Imagine. Being able to go to the calendar you have hanging up on your wall. Imagine being able to circle one of the days on that calendar in red. And imagine being able to say, that is the day when I'm going to die. And my wife is going to die. And my children are going to die. The Holocaust is coming. And it can't be stopped. Now I have likened Haman to Hitler and I don't do that lightly, lightly, but he really is a Hitler-like figure. One of the questions that is often debated about Hitler is this, why was it that he hated the Jews so much? And there's all sorts of theories about why this might be. Some people point to Germany's defeat in World War I. Some people point to the time he spent in Vienna whenever he was a teenager. And he was surrounded by all sorts of anti-Semitism. And there's many, many theories. But there's no obvious answer. But what about Haman? surely no matter how wicked and no matter how much of a maniac someone is you cannot trace mass murder on an industrial scale to something as trivial as one person refusing to bow the knee surely this man's hatred must go deeper than that And I think we're justified in saying that from the passage. Notice verse 6. Notice how utterly anti-Semitic Haman is. Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of only killing Mordecai. Yes, Haman despises Mordecai already. But there is something inside this man who despises and who reviles Mordecai all the more once he finds out that he's Jewish. So what is the source of this pathological loathing of the Jews? Well, I believe that the passage points us in the right direction. First of all, do you remember how Mordecai is introduced to us in chapter 2, And verse 5, what is the very first piece of information that we're given about him? He's a Jew. And by putting this first, the writer is telling us this fact that he is a Jew is a really crucial piece of information. What about Haman? What is the very first thing we're told about Haman in chapter 3? And verse 1, he's an Agagite. What does that mean? Well, do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Agag is the king of the Amalekites. Saul has been ordered by God that he is to destroy the Amalekites because of their extreme wickedness. And we saw in that chapter, Agag himself had been particularly cruel in how he had murdered other people. We read from Exodus chapter 17. We saw that the Amalekites had an exceptionally long history of cruelty to the Jews. They despised them. That's why, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 25 says this. It says, remember what Amalek did to you as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you when you were faint and weary. How he cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. How he did not fear God. In Exodus 17, we have the Jews, and they are exhausted. They are weary from coming from Egypt. They are vulnerable. They are refugees. And what do the Amalekites do? They attack, they butcher, and they destroy. And so God finishes that passage by saying this I will have war with Amalek. From generation to generation. Is that an exaggeration? Well here is Haman. He's a descendant of Agag. He is an Amalekite. He comes from a nation that has despised the Jewish people for centuries. A nation that has opposed God and has lashed out against God's people. And now, in Esther chapter 3, Haman the Amalekite has this chance to destroy his people's enemies, God's people, once and for all. Does that not explain why Haman reacted the way he did when he found out that Mordecai was a Jew? And whenever we realise that, we realise that actually this is a far bigger story than simply one man who has a chip on his shoulder. Yes, human is evil. But he's just a pawn. He's part of a long-term battle. And there, moving the pieces on the chessboard... Who do we have? Not Haman. But Satan himself. This is Satan's chance. Just think of what Satan will be able to accomplish whenever those Jewish doors all across the empire get kicked in. God's covenant with Abraham that we've been thinking about in our morning services is going to be ruined. God's promise that he's going to bless the entire world through Abraham's seed is going to be broken. The true worship of the true God is going to be snuffed out once and for all. God's plan to send Jesus Christ the Messiah into a Jewish family is going to be a non starter. I was reluctant to quote Hitler at the start of the sermon. You never want to take the Holocaust lightly. But what we have in Esther chapter 3 is even more serious than the Holocaust. Because the future, not just of the Jewish people, but of the entire human race, is on the line. God's plan of salvation is at stake. Satan is making his move. Now, it seems somewhat twisted to say this, but the fact that Satan is making his move is the very thing that gives this passage hope. Suppose this was simply a battle between Haman on the one hand and the Jews on the other hand. Who's going to come out on top? It's going to be Haman. But if this is actually a battle between Satan on the one hand and God on the other, well then that's a very different story, isn't it? And that's precisely what we have. In chapter 3, Satan is making his opening move. It is a devastating move. It looks like it is a decisive move. Satan has got God's people exactly where he wants them to be. Or so it seems to Esther and to Mordecai. Except we can see something they can't. We can see the whole board because we have the benefit of hindsight. We can see that even before Satan makes his first move, God has already made three. God's first move, it's in chapter 1. What on earth possessed Xerxes to give such a horrible order to his wife? And what on earth possessed Vashti to defy the most important and the most powerful man on the whole planet? How can you explain this? It's God making his move, isn't it? And now, all of a sudden, there is a vacancy in the palace. I wonder who's (laughs) going to fill it. God's second move is in chapter 2. Think of how many beautiful young women there must be in the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. They're all gathered together in D'Souza. So how on earth do you explain the fact that Esther, of all of these beautiful ladies, ends up as being the king's favourite? Because God's making his move, isn't he? And all of a sudden, there is a Jewish queen. Third move, also in chapter 2. Why is it that of all of the people... Who could have thwarted this plot? Mordecai is the man. Well, we know the answer, don't we? All of a sudden, there is a Jew, and he is quite literally in the king's good books. And so when we reach chapter three. And when we see Satan making this devastating, earth-shattering, opening move, and then we see Haman, his pawn, and we imagine him sitting there with a smug smile on his face, what do we do? We look at the whole board. And we see God has already moved three times. God has not been taken by surprise. God is not going to be beaten. Isn't that something we see over and over again? Uh, Go forward 500 years or so. What does Satan do? He makes the most devastating move that he possibly can. He gets all of his pieces lined up. There's Herod. There's Pilate. There's Judas. And he lashes out at God's very own son. He takes Jesus Christ's life. And it looks to all of the world as if it's checkmate. As if Satan has won. Except... God's not taken by surprise, is he? And as we take a bird's eye view of the board, we see God's master plan. Satan's most evil move of all is the very thing that God uses in order to rescue his people. God's not going to be beaten. And the book of Esther illustrates that principle. Remember what Matthew Henry said, and we've, we've remembered this quote a few times as we've gone through the series. God's name may not be in the book, but his finger certainly is. Even in a chapter like chapter 3 that seems so godless, we can see God's finger, can't we? We can see God setting things up. In order that he can triumph. Isn't that a lesson that we need to learn? What's Satan doing right now? Well he's making his move isn't he? We have protesters who are calling for abortion. We have marriage which is coming under attack. We have politicians who are spreading their poison. We have Christians who are being prosecuted in the courts. And that's just in Ireland. You go further afield and it gets far worse. Churches that are being burnt down, pastors who are being locked up, ordinary believers who are being beaten up and hacked to death with machetes. Satan is making his move. So, what should we do? Should we panic? Should we lose hope? The book of Esther says no. It tells us there may be times when we are appalled by the attacks that Satan launches. But it also tells us God is never taken by surprise. There may be times in your life when you feel abandoned by God, just like Esther. There may be times when you feel like you don't get what you deserve, just like Mordecai. There may be times when you are absolutely terrified because it looks like evil is coming out on top. Just like thousands of Jewish families across the Persian Empire. Yet, what does this book remind us? In spite of the darkness... In spite of the pain, in spite of the apparent godlessness, we have a God who isn't surprised and who never ceases to be in control. Let that be a lesson which sticks in our minds. Let it be something which we recall often as we're discouraged by what's going on in the world and let it be something which enables us to keep following and to keep trusting even when Satan makes his move.